In uh, 2006, there was a man, his name was Dave Bushow, who died of dehydration in the blazing heat of the Utah desert. Now, you can go on just about any news outlet and you can read about this death. Dave was one of 11 participants that was being led on this guided tour. It was a survival exercise that was designed to test a person's mental and physical toughness. And so after 10 hours without a drink and 100 plus degree temperatures, Dave Bushow's body finally gave out. He fell face down into the desert sand where he was 100 yards away from a cave that had a pool of water. And what's maddening about this story is that Dave, what you actually find out as you research this story on these different news outlets, is that he actually had water that surrounded him the entire time. The guides that were on this tour actually had safety water reserves that were on them the entire trip, but they did not let the participants know about it. And so as the participants were on this self-guided tour, they did not know that those who were with them that were to be checking in on them had these water reserves because these guides wanted them to push their body to the utmost limits that they could. They wanted them to achieve their goals for this entire trip. And Dave Bushow, not knowing that they had these water reserves, did not request it and ended up losing his life. So what happened was an actual unfortunate death turned out to be the senseless tragedy. As Ray Gardner, he was the Garfield County Sheriff's deputy at this point in time. He's the one that actually hiked six miles to go retrieve Dave Bushow's body. He put it like this. It was so needless. What a shame. It didn't have to happen. They had emergency water right there, and I would have given him a drink. As we're in this summer in the Psalm series, and we're looking at Psalm 63 this evening, it's written by King David while he is retreating out into the Judean desert. What we find is that he's actually fleeing from his own son, Absalom, who's seeking after his own life and after his rightful place as king amongst God's people. And David, being a cunning warrior himself, he flees from Jerusalem, knowing that this attack is coming in order that he can devise a strategy in order to stand up against his own son, Absalom. And as he's out in the Judean desert, he pins this psalm, Psalm 63. In the psalm, David refers to the physical tolls the desert has on a person's life, like thirst and physical exhaustion. However, David, when he's referencing this in Psalm 63, he's not doing it in reference to the things like physical water, but to God himself. He says, I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. So David is hitting a basic human desire that all of us possess here, and that's this desire to know and experience the living God. We all have this unquenchable desire inside of us to know this God who has so ornately created each and every single one of us. As Karl Barth puts it, he says, we all have this incurable God sickness. We all possess this desire if we want to admit it or not. If you look at any culture or people group throughout the course of human history, one thing that remains true about every single one of them is we've all built religious systems in order for us to know a power that's greater than ourselves. 
Even those who would claim to be atheists and agnostics have owned up to this thirst that we have for God. Julian Barnes, who was a known atheist who wrote a book on death, actually proclaims in this op-ed that he wrote for the New York Times, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And what's so amazing about Psalm 63 is that David writes that he's actually encountered, he's experienced, he has a relationship with the living God. Psalm 63, five says, you satisfy me as with rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And if we look really closely at Psalm 63, we see some practices or habits that David has in his life as he draws near in his relationship with God that I think he actually shows us a template, a picture of what it looks like for us to draw near to this God that we so thirst after. In essence, David is sort of the deputy sheriff, Ray Gardner of Dave Bushow's story. He's not the guide who withholds the water, but he's the one that actually gives us the water that shows us the template for what it looks like to draw near to the living God. And so here's what I want us to do tonight. I just want us to look at, identify these habits that we see in David's life that we can encounter from Psalm 63. I want to talk through them for a few minutes, and then I want to look at some applications, and then we'll close. All right, so if you're a note taker, here's the first note. Here's the first habit that we see in David's life from Psalm 63. He says this, that you set your gaze, that you set your gaze. Verses 1 through 2 give us this first habit. He says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. And here it is. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My, my, the dad of my best friend in middle school was a truck driver, all right? So we had a lot of fun. He was a big goofball. He always used to say that Mike Myers, the actor, was the less talented and less beautiful one. Um, and he said this tongue-in-cheek. But one of the things that he did is he, obvi- he would take us out, um, even though I was under age, he would take us out to the back streets of the suburb in Oklahoma City, and he would teach us how to drive. This is what he did. It was his profession. And so he would take us out. And one, one day we were driving out, and the friend of my, the older brother of my friend was actually driving. He had his permit. And as we were driving, we were driving on these single lane roads that went through the back country of this suburb of Oklahoma City that we lived in. And the road was notorious for having very single lanes, very tight lanes as you were driving through them. And as he was driving, there was an oncoming car that was coming straight for us. And you could immediately see that he got antsy as we were driving on this one lane road. He saw this car that was coming and he got very antsy, just afraid that he was about to have a head-on collision with this oncoming car because of how tight the lanes were. And I'll never forget that my my friend's dad looked over at his oldest son that was driving and he gave him a pointer on how to avoid this collision. He said this, the key to staying in your lane is not focusing on the oncoming car, but setting your gaze on a point in your lane that's far down the road. In Psalm 63, as David is writing to us here, he is sharing that his deep thirst for God is quenched by setting his gaze on him. And he says that he sets his gaze on him in a place called the sanctuary. Now, why would this be the place that David says that he sets his gaze on God? There's a couple of reasons, all right? So the first one is this. The sanctuary is where God's presence dwelt with his people. 
Exodus 25.8 says, They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And so they built this big, ornate tent as a place for God's presence to dwell amongst his people as they, as they went throughout the wilderness, the desert. And as they would follow this presence of God, he would show before them as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as they followed their God throughout the wilderness, there would be times where he would halt. And as they, he halted, they would then build up this tent and then the presence of God would go and dwell in this tent that they were taking and they would go and they could experience the goodness of their God as they were traveling throughout the desert. And this served as God's resting place until David's son Solomon built the final definitive temple in Jerusalem. And so David sets his gaze in the sanctuary because that's where God's presence resides amongst his people. But Maybe even as important as the first one is the second one. The sanctuary possessed decor and artifacts that resembled heaven. Psalm 78, 69 says, He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. For instance, you had things, these seven lamps that were placed inside the sanctuary. And these seven lamps were ones that were serving as an example of the seven sources of light. At this point in time, they believe there are seven sources of light. You had five planets that they thought were receiving light from these different planets. Then you had the sun itself, and then you also had the moon. So these were set in the temple in order, or the sanctuary in order for God's people to have their, hot, their minds taken to the heavens. But then you also had things like sculpted, cher, sculpted cherubim that were around the Ark of the Covenant. And then you even had these cherubim that were woven into the garments of the curtain between the Holy Holies and the sanctuary. These were to symbolize the cherubim that were guarding the God, God's throne in the heavens that we see at the end of Revelation chapter 4. Then you also see the ark that is the footstool of God's heavenly throne in Revelation in the sanctuary itself. And this too is in the Holy of Holies and the space above it is left completely vacant in order for God's presence to dwell amongst his people. So by setting his gaze in the sanctuary, David fixed his eyes on a point far beyond the present, as my, the father of my best friend would say, look at a place that's far off and distant. This is exactly what David is doing in his own life. And it gave him proper perspective, the power of God, but yet the intimacy of God as well. Because he says, God, you are my God. You've met with me. You know me. You pursue me. You see, David's future informed his present, the here and now. Now, here's our problem, I think, all right? David, he went and he set his gaze in the sanctuary, the very place where God's presence dwelt, the very place that symbolized the heavens, the place where God would reign for all human history. But yet we have a, this tendency where we glance at God rather than gazing at God in this life. See, we, we have a, this thing where we get so preoccupied with the things that are going on in our life, whether it be life in our work, whether it be our families, whether it be our own neighborhoods, whether it be issues, cultural issues that are going on in our point in time, we become so infatuated with other things besides God himself that we glance at God rather than gazing at God and we gaze at the things of this world rather than gazing at God himself. But David is instructing us that if we want to experience, if we want to quench this thirst that we have to know the living God, that we set our gaze on God rather than glancing at him in this life. 
Colossians 3, 1, 2 is just another way of saying what David has already said. He says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. So David is instructing us that if we want to encounter the living God, then we set our gaze on him and glance at what is happening around us. Now, here's the way that we do this best in this life in our present time. We do this by going to God's word. We do this by going and saturating ourselves in the living word that God has given us for this life. And we do this because when we go to the Bible, we encounter Christ himself. We get this perfect picture of who God is because of the way that Christ has lived in this world. And we get to see and encounter the beauty of who God is through this Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So you see, in Christ, we see God's perfection. Because as Jesus came down and put on human flesh, he lived this life perfectly. In Christ, we see the extent of God's love because Christ came down and he suffered in our place. The point of Christ's life was to come and live and die in our place. And we see the beauty, the extent of who and what God has done for us. In Christ, we see the glory of God because we see the resurrection of Christ which Christ says is the ultimate glorification of him himself. We see the beauty and the glory of who Christ is because he's resurrected from the grave. He has power over Satan, sin, and death. And in Christ we see God's strength because God's commitment to us is through the deposit of the Holy Spirit where he never leaves us nor does he forsake us. If you want to encounter, if you want to quench this thirst that God has instilled in every single one of us, then we set our gaze on God. And the way that we set our gaze on God is that we go to the Bible, we devour it, we read it over and saturate our lives inside of it. We memorize it so that we can pick it up even when we don't have a physical copy of it in our own hands. We talk about it over our dinner tables, our coffee tables, over our front porches, our backyard decks. We do all of these things because we want to set our gaze on this God that our soul so thirsts to know and experience. So if David is this, this deputy sheriff, who gives us the first sip, he's the first sip of encountering the living God is that we set our gaze on him. We go to the Bible where we can experience and encounter the living God. The second one is this. We see it in verses three through five, that we give him our heart. That you give God your heart. We see this in verses three through five that says this, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live, and at your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. See, David's speaking of worship here. Now, if you were to think of worship back at this point in time, you would think of animal sacrifice. All right, so what they would do is they had these animal sacrifices that they would bring this According to God's law, this animal, this bird, this lamb, whatever it might be, that they would bring to the very sanctuary that we just discussed, where they would then sacrifice this animal in place of a person. Because the penalty of death, the penalty of sin is death. And so they needed something that could be laid down in their own place. Now, now David's not speaking of this type, this type of sacrifice here, though, whenever he's speaking of worship. He's, he's actually speaking of singing. 
Why would he speak of singing instead of sacrifice here as he's talking about this idea of worship? Well, singing is actually a rendering of our heart. See, singing gives voice to our loves, our passions, and our desires. It pours out of us when we experience something so beautiful or marvelous or excellent in this life. And we don't just sing with our mouths whenever we worship. We sing with our whole bodies. We see this in David where he says, at your name, I will lift up my hands. Now, there's no better example of this than going to a concert, all right? Whenever you go to a concert, what do you do? You sing out with all the the unction that you have in your lungs, These songs that you've grown to love from your favorite artists, you sing out with all that you have, but you also sing with your whole body. You see this with grown men whenever they go to like a Pearl Jam concert and Better Man comes up, or you even see it with these teenage girls when they go to a Bieber concert, right? Like they go, they know the lyrics, they sing out with their whole body. It's not just words that are coming out of their lips, but it's actually a whole body expression that's taking place as they sing. And that's exactly what we get from David here whenever he says he comes and he lifts up the voice, lifts up his voice for God where he blesses him. He's singing not just with his lips, but he's singing with his whole body because because he says the love of God, the faithfulness of God is worth more than his own life. In essence, what David is saying to God here is I give myself to you completely. I don't just give part of myself. I give all of myself to you. And this is exactly what God is after. He's after us, not just in part, but in full. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God and he will not share devotion with any other. And it's either all or nothing. And what he's actually after is not just our actions. He's not after our words, but he's after our hearts. We see this in Psalm 51. David says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit and you will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. Jeremiah 29 actually says this, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Now, here's the real wrestle for us. If God's really pursuing our whole heart, the question I think that we all wrestle with is can we trust him? Can we trust God with all of our heart? That's a big ask, that we would give God all of ourself And the question that we would have to ask before we do it is, can we trust him? I mean, if we go to our daily news, if we see anything, if we get anything out of it, it's this routine reminder that we live in a broken world with broken bodies. You see wars, you see terrorism, you see earthquakes, you see famine, you see sickness, racial injustice, murder, exploitation. All of these constant reminders on a daily routine that we live in this broken place. There's a pastor as I was reading in prep for this Sunday um, that he shared this story about a woman in his church and the pastor was confronted by this woman about his own sermon illustrations where in these illustrations in which evil events turned out for good, she came and confronted him about it because of the experience of her own life. She had lost her own husband to an act of violence during a robbery. She even had kids that were dealing with severe mental and emotional problems. And what she articulated was that for every one story that there was this silver lining of hope, a hundred other stories would be there to conflict it. That there were hundreds of stories that would combat just one story that would end out with a good silver lining. 
Now, some of us may be sitting here tonight and be thinking, yeah, that's me. Like I look at my own life and I look at all that has happened in my life, my upbringing and the difficulty of it or the loss of a spouse or the division of my family. I have all these hearts and wrongs that are going on in my life. And it seems like for every one good outcome, there's hundreds of bad outcomes that are going on in my life. And it leads us to a place of doubt or at the very minimum confusion of whether God truly is worthy of us giving our full trust to him. We ask if God is sovereign, then where is he? And can he truly be trusted with my whole heart? Well, here's what the Bible tells us, all right? If you look at Proverbs 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. And here's why I think we can trust in God. Romans 5, 6 says this, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, speaking of this passage, there was a philosopher, Peter Kreeft, who points out that God is not ambivalent about the brokenness in this life, but rather God came to earth to deliberately put himself into our suffering. See, God's not this transcendent God that's completely abstract. He's not completely void of the experience of what's going on in this world. God was fully aware of the the damage and the brokenness that sin had caused in this world. And yet he decided to leave his rightful place and put himself, thrust himself right into the midst of it. So if we look at this, if we look at what God has done by sending Jesus, Jesus thrust himself right into the complete brokenness that you and I live in. He suffered poverty. He was born in a manger and he didn't, have, didn't even have a pillow for his own head. He suffered bereavement where he lost his own earthly father in this life, and even those, some of those who were closest to him, like his friend Lazarus. He suffered rejection at the point in time when he needed people the most. The disciples who he'd walked with for three and a half years turned their back on him, and they reject him. He suffered pain where he's beaten and crucified and hung on a tree. He suffers loneliness where he cries out his last and final breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the end, he suffers physical death where he suffocates to death because crucifixion is one of the most gruesome deaths that you could possibly bear to experience. Now, we may not have the full answer for why this world suffers evil and pain, but we do know that the answer isn't because he lacks love for us or commitment to us. Because in Christ, we see that God took on our pain and misery so seriously that he came to take it, in, take it on for us in dying in our place. Which should ultimately lead us to conclude with David that your faithful love is better than life. So look, you can trust God fully. You can trust him with your whole life. You can give him your heart. And David says if he's this guide and he's the one that's offering these sips of water in these dry and desolate lands, he's saying not only do you set your gaze on him, but you give him all of your heart. For whenever you give him all of your heart, he will satisfy you as if you have just consumed rich food. And then the third one is this, that you commit to him your thoughts. You see this in verses six through eight. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you and your right hand holds on to me. 
So finally, David moves from like sensation where he's setting his gaze and then he's also setting his heart. He's singing with words off of his own lips and he moves now to contemplation. And here David is thinking about God in the sleeping hours of the night. So if you're in the military, you have this rotation where you share these different points of the night where someone stays awake to stay alert, to watch, to see if there's any threat of an enemy that is coming to attack the group that you are with. And as David is awake in the middle of the night, he's alone with his thoughts. And David recognizes this and he seizes the moment to practice what we call meditation. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones um, has a quote where he says this, have you realized that, the most, that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And as David is wrestling with his own thoughts, he's up in the middle of the night with his own thoughts, he realizes that he really has two op- options here. The first is that he can listen to himself or the second that he can talk to himself. See, David can listen to his fear as he's up and awake and he's alert for any threat that might be coming on his life or those that he's with. He can be consumed with fear or overcome with the idea that someone might just be coming over the lip of the horizon as the sun's coming up. Is that a person that I see that's coming for my own life? He can be consumed with fear or he can talk to himself, remembering the instances that God has protected him throughout his own life. So not only does he talk to himself, not only does he combat fear, but it serves as a reminder that God is actually closer in reality than what perception may portray. See, God protected David as he fought bears and lions as a shepherd. God protected David in his battle against Goliath. God protected David when King Saul was in pursuit of his life. God protected David as he fought the Philistines shorthanded, and he spurs David to trust God as his son, Absalom, is now in pursuit of his own life. David is wrestling with these thoughts of God's commitment to him and the way that he's pursued him and he stayed by him rather than listening to his own fears as he's alert for his own own son that's coming to seek after his own life, he speaks to himself and he reminds himself of all the times that God has been faithful to him over and over and over in this life. And what is the result? He says, talking to himself spurs David to follow close to God. He says, I follow close to you and your right hand holds on to me. So here, here's the thing for us, all right? We need to talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. Whenever we experience anxiety or we experience fear, when we feel that God has finally abandoned us because he's given up on us, we failed one too many times. We practice what David does, where we remember all the times that he's been faithful to us. We go through and we list out all the times that we can remember God's hand at work in our life so that we don't abandon him in fear that he's abandoned us. We talk to ourselves, and what we will find is that it spurs us on to follow closely to God as well. My wife and I try to think through this for our own boys. We try to give them ammunition as they're thinking through this own life. And so um, some of the things that we're trying to instill in them are these different words or these different phrases that they can use in different points of time. If someone is mean to them at school or if at the playground someone doesn't want to play with them or if a teacher comes down on them hardly and they feel like they can't do their schoolwork. We want to give them these little phrases. We want to give them thoughts that they can come back to, that they can hold on to, that instill truth in their own life. And when I 
One of the passages that I found so helpful is Galatians 2.20. And he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We try to give our sons these different phrases or these different verses that they can hold on to that speak truth into the life whenever reality seems to be speaking a different tune. Galatians 2.20, I think is so beautiful because it says, I live by faith. I have a God that I know that I can trust in. It's not necessarily because I see all the physical things that he's doing before me right here and right now, but I know because of what I trust in the scriptures that I have a God who's working behind the scenes and he's for me. I have a God who loves me, that I know this because Jesus has left his rightful place in heaven and he's pursued me. He's laid down his life for me. And I don't have to be so consumed with whether, whether other people love me because I have a God that I know is completely satisfied in me because of what he's done through Christ in me. He gives himself for me. I don't have to give all of me for, in order for someone to love me because Christ has given all of himself for me and I'm fully and completely loved by this God. We speak to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves in times where anxiety and fear and doubt weigh in heavy. And that's exactly what David does in Psalm 63. He speaks to himself rather than listening to himself. He gives God his thoughts. So how do we respond to all this? Like what's our next step? If we're to set our gaze, if we are to give God our hearts, if we are to give him our thoughts, then what does this practically look like? Well, the first step is this, that you give yourself to Christ. At the very beginning of this whole entire psalm, David says, God, you are my God. We don't come to God and we don't experience God because we've done all these different actions where we've earned our way into relationship. No, God is the one that's pursued us. He's the one that comes and takes the first step towards us. And David has experienced that in his own life. As he's out in the fields with, as a shepherd with the sheep, as he sees God's hand on him as the rightful king of Israel, God has come and initiated relationship with David. And he does so with us through Christ Jesus. And so for us to be able to gaze on God and for us to give him our hearts and for us to, to give him our thoughts, we first have to come and accept and receive this Christ where God becomes our God, where he, we become and we take on his name where he's the one that comes and sets us in his family. But then if you have received him, you've accepted him, he's welcomed you into his family, then we practice these disciplines. We set our gaze on God. We saturate ourselves in the word. We give him our hearts. We give him our thoughts. We speak to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. Now, one thing that I think is a danger in this passage is for us to look at it and think, oh, it's just David and God. David's out in the wilderness. He's out being pursued by Absalom, but he has this incredible faith where it's just he and God. He's doing this monk life where he's out in the desert and he's pursuing God and he experiences God's presence with him. But what we actually see in 2 Samuel 15 is as David flees Jerusalem, he actually leaves with 600 different men to go out into the desert. I think this serves as a warning to us that we don't just practice these disciplines. We don't just practice gazing at God or giving him our heart or giving him our thoughts by ourselves. But actually, it's a practice that we do in the midst of community amongst God's people. We have people that help instill these practices in our life. 
This is why we're doing things like discipleship groups so that we have people that are constantly pointing us to Christ to set our gaze on him, to give him our hearts, to give him our thoughts. Because if it's left to ourselves, we know that we will stray. But we need people that are in our life that are pointing us back to these realities, that we practice them and pursue them in our life, just as David would have done in the desert as he's around some of the most faithful men that were around him for his entire life. These might be personal practices, but they are not done in isolation. So receive Christ and then practice these disciplines in the midst of relationship where you commit yourself to a church body that loves you and helps point you to Christ Jesus. So let's end with the story, right? There was a movie that came out in the late 90s called City Slickers. Anybody seen this movie? So um, this movie is about this character, Mitch Robbins. He's played by Billy Crystal, who's a young 30-something at that point in time. Billy Crystal's not 30-something anymore. But at this point in time, he was portraying this. And this guy had a well-paying job, and he had a very fashionable lifestyle. Yet he was suffering from confusion and dissatisfaction about his life. Lived in upper Manhattan, seemed like he had the world at his fingertips, but yet he had this unsatisfied thirst, if you will. He gets roped into joining two of his friends on this cattle drive in the Southwest. And on this cattle drive, Crystal's character, Mitch, meets this old leathery wise man named Curly that's played by Jack Palance. And Curly asks Mitch, as they're out on this cattle drive, if he would like to know the secret to life, which Mitch assures him that he does. And so this is what Curly says. He says, it's this, holding up one single finger. And the, so Mitch replies, the secret of life is just your finger? Like, it's this one finger? And Curly replies, it's one thing. The secret of life is pursuing just one thing. Crystal's character resonates with this because he has a lot of friction that's going on in his life. He feels very torn between a number of things, whether it be his family and his career or his need for security or his appetite for excitement. So Mitch obviously pursues him and asks, well, what's the one thing? Curly, what's the one thing that you're saying is going to provide satisfaction in this life? And Curly says this to Mitch, you have to find it for yourself. See, what Psalm 63 does, David doesn't leave us wondering like Curly does for Mitch. He, Curly understands that there's the single thing that you have to pursue after in this life, but he doesn't have the ultimate answer. But David comes to us, these people that have an unquenchable thirst for God, and he's holding up his one figure, and he says there's one thing. You don't thirst after water. You don't thirst after your career. You don't thirst after your family. You don't thirst after success. You don't thirst after fame. The one thing that you thirst after is God and God himself. And I've given you the template for how you encounter the living, active, creating God here in Psalm 63. You set your gaze upon him, you give him your heart, and then you commit to him your thoughts where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we um, wrestle with the truth of this psalm, Psalm 63 tells us that you are a God that we truly can encounter, that you're not just off in distant space where there's just this huge gap between us and you, that there's no intimacy that we can have with you, but in fact, 
the Bible actually tells us that you are a God that you come and you make a way for us to experience and encounter and have a relationship with you. The very thirst of our own hearts and souls. And so, God, we pray that the promises of the scriptures would be true, that you come and you meet us and that you come and live with us and that you lead us and you guide us and that we would encounter you. I pray that we would be a people, God, that set our gaze on you, that we would trust you with all of our life, that we would give you our hearts and that we would give you our thoughts, that we would we'd speak to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves as fear and doubt and anxiety set into our own life. May we be like David, that we can say that your faithful love is better than our own life because we've tasted and we've experienced the goodness of who you are, God. We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.